You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. clear picture of the gospel. We become banished from God by our sin. We're banished from God by our sin. Sometimes we're running off from Him because of our sin, as well as being exiled from Him. And sometimes when we're being chastened by God and the hand of God, we may also feel banished. Yet, we always have hope. The promise is that we belong to God. We're His children. And we're His. He's ours. We belong to Him. We've been purchased with a price. Nobody likes to mess up. In our spiritual lives, just like in our daily lives, we have a sense of pride just as we have a sense of shame. Pastor Dave reminds us today that even at our best, we are still unworthy of God's love and forgiveness. But no matter how many times you screw up, God's love still surrounds you. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 14 as he begins his message, Banished But Forgiven. Second Samuel 14. We're going to look at, be looking at specifically verses 1 to 20. 1 to 20 as we continue our way, plowing our way through the book of Second Samuel. We're almost halfway through. So as we've been plodding along, we look back at all that God had accomplished through his servant David. We know that he defeated, God had defeated all of Israel's enemies using David. God used him mightily. All Israel's enemies had been defeated, and the kingdom of Israel had been expanded under David's leadership. God had restored Israel with the Ark of the Covenant through David's leadership. They went and they brought the Ark of the Covenant back to a place where David had made for them, the Ark representing the presence of God. It was now in Israel's possession once again. God had used David to unite Israel together as one nation under God. At one time, there were two nations, Judah and Israel. And under David, they became one again. This was God. Remember, the entire book of 2 Samuel is about restoration. It's about restoration, and we've seen many things restored during this time. God made David's name known throughout the world, and he became famous, for lack of a better term. He became known for his good work, his good deeds. And all eyes were on the young king as he led Israel through all these times. And he made hard choices, but he continued to serve the Lord with gladness. He continued to serve the Lord with his whole heart. Remember, he's called a man after God's own heart. But David fell, and he came crashing down. And his world seemed to come to a sudden stop. He committed the sins of adultery with Bathsheba. He committed the sin of murder, having her husband Uriah killed. And then he committed the sin of his deception when he lied about it and made up stories. And because of this, he's now dealing with the aftermath of his sin. He's now dealing in that which has happened. 
the things that God told him that would happen. He's dealing with the consequences of his sin. He's dealing with the divided household, a household that would eventually rise up against him and try to overthrow him as king. And since David's sin with Bathsheba, the subsequent murder and deception concerning her husband Uriah, much has happened in the form of tragedy to David. But all happened according to the prophecy of the Lord that Nathan spoke to him back in 2 Samuel 12. His son that he had with Bathsheba died. His household had fallen apart. His daughter, Tamar, was raped by her brother, Ammon, David's oldest son and crown prince. Ammon's brother, David's other son, Absalom, murdered Ammon. And now Absalom was in exile, spending three years at the home of his grandfather in Gesher. You can read all about that in 2 Samuel 13. 30. In fact, let's read 2 Samuel 13, the last several verses, 37 through 39. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahimlad, king of Gersher. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Gersher and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Ammon because he was dead. So now as we pick up this continuing soap opera that we've called it, and although it's said in verse 39 that David longed to see Absalom, he longed to see his son, they hadn't spoken in three years. David had not done nothing to reach out to him for three years. And if David was so anxious to see his son, he went about it in a very, very strange way. Because it does appear that there's a struggle within David's heart. And this struggle is kind of haunting David, if you will. It does appear that there's this great struggle going on because he knew as king, and according to God's law, that his son Absalom deserved to be punished. He knew that. David was also well known for being quite lenient with his sons, especially to the crown prince. It's a troublesome time for David in his heart. And although David wanted to severely punish Absalom for the murder of Ammon, he changed his attitude and decided against it. And as we're going to see as we come into chapter 14, that David's going to finally bring Absalom home to Jerusalem. But his punishment is a delay in full reconciliation. He doesn't immediately go and reconcile with Ammon. And it's going to be five long years before the two of them actually see each other face to face. And because of this half-hearted forgiveness of Absalom on David's part and David's inability to cope with his entire situation, it's eventually going to lead to a rebellion by Absalom. And it's going to have a strange turnabout because David's going to find himself in exile. David's going to be the one on the run once again from his own family. But we need to take note before we begin. All that happened in David's life and all that will happen in David's life is not in spite of the fact that God had forgiven him. It's happening because God had forgiven him. Not in spite of the fact, but because God had forgiven him. And I love what this one commentator said. Quote, The man who God forgives sometimes has to drink very deeply of the well which his sins have tapped, unquote. So let's begin. Let's look at chapter 14, verse 1. So Joab, the son of Zariah, 
perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And in this verse 1, we see that David had a troubled heart for his son. And he probably was torn between two positions, as I said. He knew that he had to punish his son for the murder of Ammon, but as a father, he wanted his son close to him. He had a heavy heart for his son. But all of a sudden, another character comes into this soap opera, and one we've met before, the crafty, the cunning, the faithful, but dangerous Joab. Remember Joab? He's the ruthless captain of David's army. He enters this fray. He now is the next character to come on scene in this crazy soap opera that's coming before our eyes. He has his own plan to bring father and son back together. Let's look at 2 through 7. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field. And there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family is riven up against your maidservant, and they are said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also." So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Sound familiar? There's a familiarity here. There's a story that's being made up here that's given to David to kind of draw him in once again to go to do something for Absalom. It's a, it's a story, and it resembles a story that Nathan said to David when Nathan was trying to get David to confess his sin back in chapter 12. It's a fabricated story, and it's told to bring David into the concerning Absalom and to do something about his son. Basically, the woman comes with a story that, with David. Of course, she's been rehearsed by Joab. She tells the king, my husband is dead. My two sons got into a fight and one killed the other. Now the rest of my family wants to kill him as well. What am I going to do? So we see this woman's not only a wise woman, but she's a pretty darn good actress. <laughs> she even wears mourning clothes. She even wears mourning clothes and she puts on quite a performance. So when the Emmys come out for this soap opera, maybe she'll be uh, you know, awarded something. So David says, I'll help you out. Look at verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. But the woman continues. She's not satisfied with that. Read verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said to him, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. The woman was not content with David's answer, so she begged him that he would go immediately. Go and pass judgment now. Do this now. I've given you the facts. Here it is. And if I'm wrong, let me bear the blame. You won't be guilty of it. Your throne will be held irresponsible. You won't be responsible for what's going on. David assures the woman that she's going to be safe from any retribution in verse 10. So King said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. 
This doesn't satisfy the woman. She continues to pressure him. She continues to come at him full force. She's not satisfied. It's all part of the plan to get David into a vulnerable position. It's all part of a plan to get David into a vulnerable position concerning his son Absalom. Remember, this is a fabricated story. It's not true. She is playing the part. Look at verse 11. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Taking an oath in the name of the Lord was binding. It wasn't supposed to be ignored. Here David is taking an oath. Not one hair of the head of your son who killed your other son will fall. Not one hair on his head. David can't ignore them. The woman had him right where she wanted him. She got him right where she wanted him. She played him like a flounder. She played him. She played him. Only he wasn't a 17 and a half incher. He was probably pretty big. He was probably a pretty big flounder. She played him. She got him right where she wanted. Look at 12 through 17. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to the Lord my king. Okay. All right. Like I haven't said enough. I have one more thing to tell you. I have one more thing to tell you. I love that. When you ever have that happen when you're talking to somebody? You answer one question. They go, yeah, well, what about this? Answer another, well, what about this? They always have one more thing to ask, one more thing to push. And he said, say on. You kind of like David. David. Okay, fine. I've heard you this far. Come on. Lay it on me. So the woman said to him, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, uh-oh, in that the king does not bring his banished one home. She's talking about Absalom. She's talking about Absalom. She has him. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request for his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together for the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of the Lord, the king, will now be comforting for as the angel of God, so is my Lord the King discerning good and evil, that may the Lord your God be with you. Wow. Like I said, the woman had David right where she wanted him. David is trapped in his own words once again. Remember with Nathan was, we're going to kill the guy. We're going to get the guy who took that lamb, who killed that lamb. And Nathan said, uh, you're the man. And here she comes at him. Is she calling him a hypocrite? Yeah, she's basically calling him a hypocrite. She's basically calling him a hypocrite. If David agreed to protect the guilty son who he did not know, how much more was he obligated to protect his own son? And that's what she's trying to say. This woman came to him as a matter of involving the future of the nation of Israel. It was the future. Why? Absalom was now the crown prince. Absalom was now heir to the throne. Absalom would take over for David when David passed on. So she had the future of Israel in mind. Absalom was next in line. He was the crown prince, but he was in exile. David forgave the murder of her son, so why could he not forgive the man who plotted the murder of Ammon? This is what the question was. 
How much longer was the king going to wait? That's basically what she said. King, life is short. Like water spilled on the ground, she says. Life is short like water spilled on the ground. Absalom is the future of the nation. You can't bring Ammon back alive. He's dead. Move on. Let's get moving with the business of the country. That's basically what she's saying. Unfortunately, the sort of forgiveness that David showed Absalom would only lead to rebellion. He doesn't fully embrace Absalom. God is no respecter of persons. And his law is true. But even God devises a way to show mercy and forgive people. He punishes sin. That's a given. And we know he forgives sin through his word. But God also seeks to reconcile those who are far off from him. And he's given us a reconciler. He's given us a redeemer who wants to call those who are far off come to himself. Turn to Ephesians 2, please. I'm going to read 11 down through probably 18. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, there it is, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Amen. Those who were far off. He was talking about us, folks. He was talking about us being far off, doing our own thing. Gentiles in the flesh, uncircumcised. We didn't have the promises of God. We weren't supposed to have the promises of God. They were for the Jews. Although the Jews were supposed to show us the promises of God in hopes that we would come near them. We didn't have the covenant. But Jesus Christ came and reconciled us back to God. That was the covenant. He reconciled us back to God through the cross. And that's what Paul is saying here. And I love this. And in verse 14 that we just read, let's read it again back in 2 Samuel. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet, God does not take away a life. He devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. This is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. This is an extremely clear picture of the gospel. We become banished from God by our sin. We're banished from God by our sin, and sometimes we're running off from him because of our sin, as well as being exiled from him. And sometimes when we're being chastened by God and the hand of God, we may also feel banished. Yet, we always have hope. The promise is that we belong to God. We're his children, and we're his. He's ours. We belong to him. We've been purchased with a price. We've been purchased with a price. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we're trusting in him that he's not going to let us go. Long, long time ago, God devised a plan to bring those who were banished back to him. We were banished from God because of our sin. 
And we're not going to be expelled from him. The way God provides back is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ and how he stood in the place of guilty sinners and hung on a cross and received the punishment we were supposed to receive. But if we're not careful, we can drift to what is called practical atheism. We can drift in practical atheism. Let me explain what I'm trying to say here. This happens when we get so far from God that he's no longer in our thoughts on a daily basis. We get so far from God, he's not relevant in our daily lives. We get so far from God, we don't read his word. We don't pray. We don't come in fellowship with the saints. We get so far from God, we keep our distance from him. Oh, we might even come to church to keep up appearances. I mean, if I don't come to church, they're going to think I'm weird, so I'm going to come. But yet our hearts are still not in it. Our hearts are still far from God. We're still far from Him. We seek those which stir up our emotions rather than the reality of His presence in our lives. So we, like Absalom, run away. We run away and we banish ourselves. We forget the most important thing of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, for God so loved the world. Oh, how we forget that. We forget God's love. God's love is not good enough to take care of me today because I'm having a bad day. God's love is not good enough to take care of me because I'm sick, I'm hurting, I've lost a loved one, and on and on and on and on. God's not good enough for me today. He can't handle those things that are coming my way. And even when we run away, even when we run away, God still loves us. Even when we turn our backs on Him, He continues to have that love flow towards us. Let me ask you a question. Did the father of the prodigal son stop loving him when he ran off? No. There's your picture. What did the prodigal son's father do? Every single day the boy was away. Went onto the porch and looked, searching for the son. When is he going to return? Knowing he would return. That's what's so cool about it. Knowing that he would return. He looked there. He never gave up hope that his son would come home. And even though the son turned away from his loving father, the father never stopped loving him. You can turn away from God all you want and suffer the consequences and do those things, but God will never stop loving you. Why? Because if you're in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That deserves to be read. You know the verse, Romans 8, 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, where? Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to experience that non-separation? Get back to Christ our Lord. Get back in with Christ. Get back in with Christ. He still loves us. Why? When you purchase something, that really is important to you, you really like it. And some of you have turned that like into love. I love my new house. I love my new car. I love my new boat. You love it, right? You love it. God purchased us with his dear son's blood. He purchased us. He brought us back. He reconciled us. He re us. He took us out of the darkness and placed us into his marvelous light. He took us from once we were sinners into the fact that now we're sinners saved by God's grace. And he never stops loving us. You are a sure.
The book of 2 Samuel continues the story of King David as he's finally able to ascend the throne. Though he seemed to have achieved God's calling on his life, David's journey wasn't free of problems. David was still human, and he made mistakes that affected him and those he loved. But during the rest of his life, no matter where it took him, David remained a man after God's own heart. When confronted with his sin, David consistently turned back to his heavenly father, confessing and asking for forgiveness. David knew he wasn't perfect and that he needed the mercy only God could provide. Today, we hope you too remember that God's mercy is worth seeking. He's provided for you the grace you need to live free from your sin through the blood of Jesus. Jesus came to die on the cross in your place, taking the punishment your sins deserved. Would you like to know more about having your sins forgiven? Please visit our website then, assurehoperadio.com. Click on How to Be Saved to learn all about what Jesus has done for you and why you need His grace in your life. If you still have questions or would like us to pray with you, please don't hesitate to call us, 609-884-5821. Again, that number is 609-884-5821. We're so glad you tuned in today. You can hear more messages like this from Pastor Dave at our website as well. Just click on podcasts slash radio when you visit assurehoperadio.com. Thanks for joining us today on Assure Hope.